welcome to CCBJ Perspectives podcast, providing access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. Today, we are so pleased to welcome Carrie Cohen, who's a partner with Morrison Forrester. She and I are here to discuss how we can collectively further the success of women in the legal profession. As a former federal and state prosecutor, Carrie routinely advises and represents corporations, boards, and C-suite executives in sensitive government-facing investigative and regulatory matters. Carrie's extensive trial experience and distinguished record of success in high-stakes white-collar defense and security matters cement her position as a leading lawyer in these practice areas, and she is often called upon as trial counsel for particularly sensitive matters. Carrie has long been a leader in advancing women in the legal profession, both in the United States and globally. She co-chairs Morrison Forrester's Women's Strategy Committee, a group that works with firm leaders to ensure the advancement of women remains a strategic priority and serves as a member of the New York City Bar's Cyrus R. Vance Center for International Justice, where she spearheads a professional development program for women attorneys in Latin America and South Africa. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're pleased that you could take the time to be here and talk about this very important subject. Pleasure to be here. So we're working on having a little more fun with the podcast episodes. And so I'd like to ask you an icebreaker if that's okay. That's perfect. I'm all for trying to have fun. Okay, terrific. So share with us both what the most peculiar thing you've purchased since March of this year is and what the best purchase you've made has been. Ah, that's a tough call. Let me see. I haven't purchased that many things, admittedly. I'm not a big fan of online shopping. But I think the one thing I purchased that, especially people who know me well, find the most peculiar is I purchased active yeast, like yeast to make bread. I am not known for any skill <laughs> at all. But sort of going with things that you do in the pandemic and trying to entertain some of my kids, we started baking bread. And the first time we made a loaf of bread, I took a photo and texted it to my sister, who immediately texted back, who stole my sister's phone? Because it is just way out of character for me to be baking. So I would say active yeast is the strangest thing that I have purchased, although for some I know that's a regular purchase. I will say the bread tasted was excellent, shockingly, but that's probably due to my daughter being able to follow a recipe. That's fantastic. The best purchase, selfishly, is in the very, very beginning, when things were closing down before that Friday the 13th here in Manhattan, I purchased a set of hand weights, like three, five, and eight. And I have to say, those have been vital for me, <laughs> being able to you know, do some workouts at home and de-stress, et cetera. That's terrific. Well, I'll tell you something that only a few people on my team know so far that my best and strangest is this thing called a ring light. Okay, I don't know what that is. It's something that you can put on your desk or in your office so that when you're on Zoom or Microsoft Teams videos, it's just more flattering biting. That's excellent. <laughs> I'm gonna actually, that would be an internet purchase I would absolutely do. Yes, I'm sure MoFo would support it too. <laughs> I thought, I thought perhaps it was a ring light, like I want one of those on-air lights to put over my little office that I've carved out at my house so that no one comes in. Oh, that would be, that's a, that would be a purchase I want. <laughs> I, I may have to look into that. 
So um, let's get into what we're here for real to talk about. You had an extraordinary career working for the New York State Attorney General's Office as a federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, and now as a partner with Morrison Forrester. How did you choose this career path? So I feel really a lot of gratitude for my career. Um, not to say that it wasn't a lot of hard work because it was and still is, but I've had really an amazing time in the government and really value government service. And let me just back up. Before I went to the government, I actually started my career as a women's civil rights lawyer. And I went to law school to be a litigator and to try to help people and do justice. And so I worked on women's rights for a woman, Judith Vladek, who had her own law firm, Vladek, Waldman, Elias, and Engelhardt, which is now Vladek, Raskin, and Clark, run by her daughter. Mrs. Vladek passed away. But I was a civil rights, women's rights lawyer. I worked at, I had a fellowship, worked at Legal Momentum, and then went to the Vladek firm and really was taken under the wing of Judith Vladek, as well as her daughter, Anne, and other partners at that firm, and really taught how to be an excellent lawyer. Taught about the hard work, the preparation, and all the heart and soul that goes into being a really good advocate for someone. And I did that for four or five years. And then I didn't know if I wanted to do civil rights law for my, what then as a fourth or fifth year, I thought my whole career, although one never knows, I will tell the viewers, you never know which twists and turns things are gonna take. But I know at the time I felt like I should perhaps expand my horizons a little bit. So I jumped over to MoFo as an associate to get a broad-based litigation background. And I was there for a while and I really enjoyed it and then got recruited back to do civil rights for the attorney general's office. And I did that for a while as a, a line assistant and I absolutely loved it and then was asked to lead the public corruption unit, which was in the criminal division. I had been in the civil rights unit, which is affirmative civil rights cases on the civil side. And even though I did not have the criminal background, I had never been an ADA, but I was asked to lead the public corruption unit again in the criminal division. And I said, yes, but I relied of course heavily on the former ADAs, both in my unit and elsewhere in the Criminal Prosecutions Bureau at the AG's office to work with me on our criminal cases. We did civil and criminal, and I found the public corruption sphere really fascinating. It enabled me to sort of combine an interest in politics with an interest to do justice. And I did that, and then um, with the change in administration at the Attorney General's office, I wanted to learn more about criminal work because I had done some of it, but not enough and I thought that was an area I could really learn more of and I applied to the Southern District of New York and was blessed to get a call that I had been accepted and offered a job to work at the Southern District of New York and so I worked I was an assistant there for almost nine years and tried all types of criminal cases in the end sort of specializing in financial fraud and public corruption matters and I will say just from working in the government for you know, it was about 15 years total in different roles and different aspects of the government. I have a real faith in our government and the government's ability to do what's right. And I was, it was a privilege to be a part of that at the time. I left the government about five years ago 
and when I was looking around at various law firms to do primarily white collar investigations, I went back home to Morrison and Forrester. I have great respect for the work of the attorneys I'd worked with at Morrison and Forrester when I was an associate. I'd kept in touch with many of them. Many of them are still there. And it really has been a wonderful platform to expand my practice and our investigations in white collar group as a whole practice. And we have done and continue to do really cutting edge work representing companies and individuals in all different types of investigations. It's fantastic. My goodness, I'm exhausted just listening to it. <laughs> so that's a, a long, a long-winded answer to just give you a sense of, and I hope the viewers here in this, I don't think that there are that many women civil rights lawyers that end up as federal prosecutors, right? It's not a linear career path. And so you just should always go with what interests you and where you think you can grow and where you think you can contribute rather than necessarily trying to plot it all out. Well, that's an interesting point that you make, and it's something that comes up frequently when I'm interviewing women about how it's very rarely successful women like yourself. It's very rarely linear. It zigs and it zags. And so many people that I've talked to actually either have worked in government and then go private, but many have gone from being outside counsel to in-house and then back out again. Mm -hmm. Like my friend, Megan Belcher, who's with Scholar, um, and yep. formerly with ConAgra. So yep. it's just I know, I know Megan's a great, Megan Belcher is a wonderful example of just of everything any good lawyer should be. She's um, tremendous and she also does such important work, I think, in advancing women in the profession and being out there. So I'm glad you brought her now. She's someone I greatly admire. Yes, and, and you know, Megan is very generous with her time and her capacity, which is something that I always admire. Agreed. So, you know, some of the conversations I've been having are more about women 3.0, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk about who and what in, has influenced you along the way and how that's informed your leadership style. Sure. So I think as I was sort of taking you through my career path, I mentioned Judith Vladek and the attorneys at Vladek that I worked with as a very junior associate. I would say they, they had a huge impact on how I practice law in terms of the dedication to the craft, so to speak. They were a small boutique firm that did primarily, um, was known for employment and labor law, and especially for representing women plaintiffs in sexual harassment and gender-based discrimination in the workplace. But every piece of paper that left that, that law firm was as good as a brief to the United States Supreme Court. There was no detail too small. <laughs> it really was amazing. It really taught me the importance of that craft because it, it, it matters so much, the attention to detail. And I always say as a trial lawyer, there's just no substitute for the preparation. And so having then spent many, many years, and I still spend a lot of time with witnesses, and trying to prepare them for testimony and talking to them and trying to figure out what the facts are. There's just no substitute for that, for a really deep dive into the facts. And then on the flip side, there's of course no substitute for figuring out what the law is. What are the elements of the crime or what are the elements of the cause of action and figuring out how do you prove those and doing that sort of order of proof. All those things litigators talk about 
but I spend a ton of time going back to basics in my own practice and constantly gaming that out with my team and making sure that we're a fulsome team. I think diversity of viewpoint from a diverse group really brings you a better result. I am a very strong believer and I've done a lot of work as I'm sure we'll talk about as we go on, on women in the profession and diversity efforts. And I co-chair our Women's Strategy Committee and de facto assist on the Diversity Strategy Committee. There really is, it's amazing how bringing in diverse backgrounds of all sorts really does produce a better result because you challenge each other and your assumptions and your thought process and how you view a piece of evidence and how you view a witness statement differently. And the product, the ability to give the client a well thought out, but well-rounded viewpoint is really tremendous. So I do spend a lot of time with my teams making, looking at the composition of the teams and making sure that we're able to give the client the diversity of background that really produces the better result. That's really interesting. I think a lot of people I know see it looking backwards and recognize that maybe they didn't have the right people involved, but usually it's too late. So that's fantastic that you're able to do that consciously, put together the team that way. Yeah, and I I would add, I think working at the New York State Attorney General's office, I was there under Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who had really a tremendous executive team. And Michelle Hirschman, who's now a partner at Paul Weiss, was the deputy. Um, And then Peter Pope was the head of the criminal division. Andy Chelley was the head of the civil rights division. Dieter Snell was the affirmative litigation head. And I would have to say those individuals just brought such a cross-section of thinking and discipline. And I learned a ton from each one of them. And so I know we all talk about it takes a village, but it really does take this village to bring up sort of women and diverse candidates and all of them contributed so much to the the lawyer that I am today and taught me so much about, especially when you work for the government, doing the right thing for the right reason is you have so much power and most of, at least at the line level at the AG's office or at any government office and even at the federal prosecution, the DOJ at Southern District, you know, you have junior attorneys entrusted with a lot of power and that's especially true in criminal cases. And, you know, to learn how to use that power for good and and how to be judicious and how to see the other side and try to see the gray, I cannot stress how important that is. I would say my Southern District of New York is an outstanding office with an amazing history and it lives up to that history every day and continuing through current times. It has shown itself to bring cases without fear or favor. And the attorneys I worked with there from, you know, the U.S. attorney, Michael Garcia, who hired me, and Preet Bharara, who I spent most of my career there under, and all of his deputies and all of the different supervisors I served under and all the other assistants that I worked with and tried cases with, just taught me so much about doing justice the right way and seeing the gray, learning how to see the gray and how to have that help your decision making. Well, and I've found over the years that being able to interview professionals like yourself who have the government background and understand the intent has been really helpful to our audience who have never worked in government 
and don't speak government lawyer. If right. that makes sense. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a really a, a really good point. I think sometimes it can be if you have you haven't served in government, you know, it can feel like an insulated club that only understands each other. I, I think that is not true. And you know, I say that from having been on the inside and now on the outside, there is on a substantive level a content-based experience that we've all had if we've served in government, especially as criminal prosecutors. But of course, there are amazing, talented criminal defense lawyers that have never served in government. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I just find it to be like a special club, not in a, in a bad way, just people who speak a different language and understand the framework of pursuing actions that is a mystery to us, you know, civilians. <laughs> well, I hope I can help demystify it. There we go. So, Carrie, there's been so much discussion about inclusion in the legal profession. It's been going on forever. And we're just still continuing to struggle to move the needle significantly. Why do you think that is? So I wish I could give you the magic formula to this, because like you, I've been working on issues of diversity and inclusion my entire legal career. And like you have been frustrated at how hard it is to move that needle. I recently worked with some former women chairs of the New York State Bar Association Commercial and Federal Litigation section on a report about women in the courtroom. And we had the judges in New York State as well as the federal, four federal districts in the Second Circuit participate in a survey about you know, the raw data, who are they seeing in their courtroom and on what types of cases. We did the survey three years ago, we redid it recently and unfortunately found not much improvement. And why is it that women are not lead on the bet the stakes litigation? Why is it that this was focused on women? And I think probably the numbers are worse for people of color and people of different national origins than white Caucasian. We were focused on women and we spent a lot of time trying to figure out why we had written this groundbreaking report and made all these recommendations. And a lot of the recommendations had been adopted, including we recommended to the judiciary that they include in their individual rules incentives to have junior people speak, that they would grant oral argument if a junior person presented the argument. You know, lots of things to try to get junior people more exposure in the courtroom and why, and a lot of judges in the state and the federal system adopted individual rules and have been very outspoken about their desire for diversity in their courtroom in speaking roles. And the needle still didn't move that much. And I say all the, you know, there are a lot of general counsels and heads of major investigations, practices, and litigation groups at major companies who are laser focused on this issue and have been really pushing their outside counsel, not only to have a more diverse slate on or team on their matter, but to have the, make sure and monitor what work the diverse attorneys are doing on their matters. And still, right, we still see that needle not, it, it has moved a little bit, but not tremendously, right? And I, why that is, I think I long ago, stopped asking why and have been just trying to focus on we just have to keep doing more and we're just 
And the more we do, it does move. It moves slower than we all want. It moves very incrementally. I really worry, you know, about the pandemic and the effect that will have on working parents' ability to keep up um, and the pipeline on that. And just in general, times of economic recession tend not to benefit at all. In fact, they are to the detriment typically of diverse attorneys. And so I know at Morrison and Forrester, at the beginning of the pandemic, our DNI team, we sort of doubled down. And instead of keeping our diversity and inclusion efforts within the firm at status quo during the pandemic, we went on steroids and just ramped up because of those concerns. And so I have stopped asking why, and I'm much more trying to be focused on all the things that we can do as lawyers individually, on our own teams, in our own practices, things we can do as a firm, things we can do with our partners in-house and how we can work with them, and things we can do with bar associations, things we can do with outside organizations to just keep moving, moving all the initiatives forward in the hope that the needle continues to inch up and maybe at an increasing speed. You know, along those lines, Carrie, we should talk about the ideas of allies, sponsors, and mentors. The, the terms are often used interchangeably. Can you share your thoughts with us about how the roles are different and who's best suited for each one? Sure, and I think that's a really important question. And I think it's important to realize the differences because it's extremely helpful to understand the differences and to understand how they intersect. So a mentor. So I think of a mentor as someone who I turn to for advice, right? Someone in my kitchen, my cabinet, in my village that, and I have a lot of different mentors and I have mentors for different things within my career and my life. So when I said earlier, it takes a village, I see my mentors as my village. It's people I turn to for different things, but it's not necessarily individuals that I turn to because they can help me advance my career. They may be able to, but that's not, it's really that I want their advice because I value their advice on this particular subject because they have an expertise in this, or I think their ability to read a room or their ability to understand how a law firm works or their ability to understand how the courtroom, a particular courtroom works is valuable. And so I turn to different mentors for different reasons for advice. A sponsor, very, very different from a mentor. A sponsor is someone who has a position of authority, leadership, power within his, her or their organization who is willing to use that position to advance me and my career, right? So, you know, you take, I'll just take the law firm setting, right? The practice group head, right? Is someone who within the firm has an ability to champion the work I'm doing and advance me within the firm. That's someone who is a sponsor. And sometimes I know that someone is a sponsor and sometimes I don't, right? Because there are a lot of, and that's the same is true for my team members and people that I'm sponsors for. I oftentimes 
talk about associates who are doing great work on my teams to various partners at the firm. And I don't always share, and this is not intentional that I'm hiding it, but I sometimes am advocating for them as their sponsor and they may not know it. So a sponsor really is someone who's able to use their own position within whatever organization to advance another person. Separately, an ally is someone in an organization who is able to advocate for you like in the moment, so to speak. So for example, and this is an example I think that's given by many because it happens so often and still happens so often and happens to me even you know, despite where I'm at in my career, is, you know, you women or diverse attorneys are in a meeting and they voice an opinion, a solution to some issue. Then the white male offers the same exact solution to the issue. And someone else in the meeting who is higher up says, Joe, what a great solution. And I'll just say Amy, who was sitting next to Joe, had said the same thing five minutes before. An ally is someone who in that moment is able to say, yeah, Joe, I'm so glad that you emphasized Amy's great point or some words to that effect. Someone who in a meeting can show you they have your back in that meeting and are gonna make sure your voice gets heard. They can be an ally to you. And that's just one example among many of, of someone who can be an ally. And so an ally is not necessarily an ongoing relationship, the way sort of mentor-mentee sometimes is, right? An ally can be in the moment, it can be fleeting, or it can be more longstanding, of course. It sort of depends. Same way I think a sponsor tends to be more of a longstanding relationship because especially, if, again, I'm thinking of a law firm context, if you're thinking of... I'm a partner, I am sponsoring a senior associate, meaning I am that senior associate would like to make partner. I am constantly over the couple years where that relationship is critical to the success of that senior associate trying to make the case, so to speak, <laughs> for that senior associate in all of my dealings with the partners that will be making that decision. Well, thank you for that. It's really helpful. And I think as you were explaining it, your approach to it, it dawned on me that really the upside of the pandemic for many is that many people have figured out that getting the job done and getting it done well doesn't mean coming into the office at seven o'clock in the morning and leaving at nine o'clock at night, right? And I think I hope, I guess, that many women will benefit from this experience and being able to prove that they can take their time for family things. Um, and I shouldn't say that, and men too, to be at school events and whatnot, and that we don't all have to be chained to the desk on the 44th floor in Midtown. Yeah, I share that hope. And I think one of, you know, you try to look for bright spots in what is a fairly grisly time. You know, one bright spot I also think has been that we've all shared our home life because we had to at some level. And so men and women, there's just a lot more discussion of who's in the house and what's going on. And sorry, I can't get on the call. I got to go, you know, 
help my kid with their remote school or I have to go help my elderly, I gotta go buy groceries for my, my mother. You know, there's just a lot more sort of understanding and, and empathy and flexibility that working parents have always strived for and especially women, working women, parents have mothers have always strived for and hasn't always been accepted. And so I, I do think that will be a, a positive outcome. I will say though, and I think we all need to think hard about this, the, the lack of any division, right, between your home and your work has also, you know, I think lawyers especially are able to work very effectively remotely. I'm you know, a big fan of in-person and getting together and, and gaming it out. And I miss that incredibly. And so while I know that I still am working just as hard, it's not, I miss that. And sort of the personal satisfaction from the work is not the same because of that human action that's missing. So I think we have to think about that. And I do think we have to think about because there's no division, how can we, as the pandemic extends through the end of this year, if not longer, how can we make sure that working mothers are not sort of saying, I can't do both well. There aren't just, even if I want, and I want to, I just can't sleep three hours a night. You know, I did it for three months. I kept it together. I can't do it for another six. It's just not physically, mentally possible. And so I'm gonna, I have to not work or drop out or step back and not be on the cutting edge emergency investigation. Like I just got a big investigation and do you as a working mother, can you really dedicate the time? And does that then hurt your career? And I think we have to be really attuned to all of that as we move forward. And I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have great solutions to that other than I do think, you know, like everything, being open about it and discussing it and recognizing it helps us get to the right solution or make sure that it doesn't have an adverse impact on working mothers. I agree, and I think um, I'll share for both of us that we each have four children <laughs> that are all school age um, and are not, you know, speaking from the cheap seats. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. But I do think, and it's something we've tried to work on, is it does create a recognition that we need redundancy and to bring junior people into things that maybe they wouldn't have been run into just so that they can take the notes and you can speak, but they're doing all the note taking or what, like whatever it is, if it's a technical skill, if it's just a matter of recording something so that you can put your resources, your effort into the places where you should, and they can benefit by observing and just being a part of the process but where you don't have to worry about taking every single note or hooking up the recording device or whatever it is. I think that's a really good point. I also would say, and I'm gonna date myself, but you know, when I, again, when I was a junior associate, I spent a lot of time just sitting with Judith Vladek, watching her do her thing. And there is just also a real value as your training as a junior person to just be with someone who practices law at the highest level and watch them do their craft. You know, I think to the junior associates that I work with who feel like, you know, they're taking a lot of notes on calls and things, 
you actually are learning a lot. You may not appreciate it now, but down the road, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but you learn a lot by watching and being in the room with different attorneys who all have different styles. And it helps you figure out how to, what your style is and teaches you a lot as well. I absolutely agree. I think also um, I was very fortunate, Carrie, when I was new in my career in media, that I worked for someone who traveled three weeks out of four or five and a half weeks. And I had a lot of opportunity to work independently it, because he traveled all around the world. I had to sit in on many of his phone calls and negotiations and sales calls. And I was also really fortunate that he did two things for me. One, when our company, the company he initially hired me at was sold, he brought me to my next company, which was A&E Television Networks, which is very much a family style company. But also there he advocated for me to go to Dale Carnegie to refine my presentation skills. And that was just not something that back in the day really happened right. <laughs> at most organizations, especially media companies. So I'd like to hear about your experience and also what you think is the right next step for men and women working together to advance inclusion and diversity um, and really looking at it like a team effort and not one versus the other. Right. I will say, and at uh, Morrison and Forrester, having spent the past four plus years since my return back to the firm as a partner, as co-chair of the Women's Strategy Committee, I've spent a lot of time on this exact issue, how to make us all work, everyone together to work on these issues because, because it's the right thing to do at some level, right? Uh, it is the right thing to do for all the right reasons. It is just to do it. Uh, it is what we should be doing. It is what we have to do. But as I believe I mentioned earlier, there's a, of course a business case to do it, but even if you left that aside, you produce a better result if you are challenged with people who don't think exactly like you are, who don't come from the exact same background you come from. And so I know the firm has spent a lot of time on finding avenues to open discussion. So just recently with all the issues of racial injustice, the firm has opened up various dialogues within the firm to discuss the issues. And we even put together a sort of 21 day reading list and had, it wasn't only reading, it was podcasts too, just so you know, podcasts and reading and videos and, and the dip, the partners, the associates, the staff, the paralegals, everyone at the firm could participate and could pick whichever thing they wanted to read or listen to or watch. And then there were small discussion groups around it. And I thought that was a really great way to try to discuss very tough issues in an inclusive uh, manner. And so that's you know one thing we've been doing and we've been doing a lot of work off of that in the advancing women's space as well, just bringing in um, the men into the discussion. Our sort of theme last year was sort of men as allies, was really bringing men into the discussion. At the same time, realizing there are different affinity circles and things where we women just want to talk to each other about something. 
I mean, that's not to exclude you, but sometimes there is a real need for that and a value for it, while at the same time having other spaces where we're all together and discussing the tough issues. And you know, dealing with unconscious bias training, which of course the firm had and continues to have and build on, and microaggressions and dealing with that and just trying to get people to think out of the, not out of the box about it, but in different ways about it and to create a more inclusive firm where everyone is comfortable and treated equally and the work product as a result is just better. And it's not all about the work being better. As I said, it's also about doing the right thing and being, we're all lawyers and we're part of a wonderful profession where we have great tools and abilities to help our world be a better place. And I know that is a little hokey at some level, but it's how I think about these issues. I understand and I've spoken to so many people about their careers and why they entered the legal profession. And most people didn't join to get paid. <laughs> They've done all the hard work for a reason and that's for justice and to see the right thing. I think that there's a lot of discomfort and defensiveness related to inclusion. And, you know, I've seen a few firms and it sounds like yours has a format too that maybe other organizations can adopt in terms of just opening up the discussion in a way that people don't feel like they're going to offend somebody or that they have to be defensive about something that they've done in the past. Do you have any specific advice on how we can open up that discussion? Yeah, I think that is always part of the discussion is how to have that open discussion without making people feel defensive. But yet at the same time, you know, people do need to be educated and people do need to change their behaviors. And I don't think we can shy away from that truism. You know, I think the days of saying, well, I just don't think that way, that's just not an issue I have, are, are long past gone. I think the unconscious bias training is something that our firm, again, has done and continues to do in targeted ways with different groups at different levels. Sometimes, you know, mixing men and women and diverse attorneys in different ways, right? Sometimes by level, sometimes by practice group, sometimes all together and doing it in all different ways, I think helps break down the defensiveness and leads to people feeling like they're actually learning something. They're not, no, they're not being singled out. They're not being blamed, but it's a problem we all share. We all have unconscious biases and we all need to continue to work hard to make sure that we are being as inclusive as we can be. Well, and I think it's fair to, to add to that, that the unconscious biases work both ways. So if you're a 50 year old white male, maybe people are making assumptions about you and your perception of the universe that aren't true to you. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And also like I, I'm a woman attorney and I identify as heterosexual, but that, it doesn't mean I don't have unconscious biases about women or being a mother or being heterosexual or being white. I, I you know, I have uncon, you know, we all have them. And I think the, the trainings that are the most successful 
bring that out. And so there, that breaks down that sort of feeling like I, I, you know, defensiveness I have found. So I've been in a lot of these trainings at the firm and we've brought in different experts and different trainers and different coaches. And so I've seen a variety of ways that the training can be conducted. And the ones that I think are most successful are the ones that do help break down that defensiveness. So we've been working really hard at CCBJ for six years now to make sure that we're profiling more women, more people of color, the LGBT community, to the extent that we've been able to, because that does not demonstrate itself as obvious. And you will be speaking at our second annual Women in Business and Law event, but what more can we do to further inclusiveness in the profession? So I think, and I was a moderator at your last panel last year and got a lot out of spending the day with you all and the panels you put together. And I speak often on the subject of women in the profession, both at bar associations and for publications. And I think we just, you have to keep doing what you're doing and not feel that you're doing too much of it because I don't necessarily think there can be too much of it as long as the content and the quality is strong. So I think that what differentiates your program that's coming up and the one prior and the work that you're doing is bringing the business side of law together with the sort of outside law firms, because I think there is great progress to be made by outside lawyers working with their house counterparts to really figure out how we can get closer to true sort of equality on what I call the bet the company trials, the bet the company investigations. And that's, that's the space I operate in. And that's a space where I still see, you know, when it's really, really serious, the default is to go to your safety net, which historically is a trends towards white male and how to create the pipeline, sustain the pipeline, build the pipeline and really work through how to make sure that on your big publicly facing or just even if they're never see the light of day, which in my world now for certain matters is sometimes important because there's been nothing done that is wrong, but there's still a need to investigate, et cetera. But to make sure that on those matters, you have not only a diverse team, but who's doing what on the matters and to track that and figure that out and work with your outside counsel. And there's a lot of work, I think, that the in-house teams are doing on that, especially the people who can drive it, the general counsels. Um, but of course, the general counsels also have to answer to a board and a CEO, especially on matters that reach that level because um, either they have big exposure for the company financially or reputationally or both. And so I think that's where the partnership and what you all are doing to bring us together will really help eventually move the needle forward. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I will shamelessly plug the program that my colleague Kimberly Fine and I have been working on with our team, which is Project Inclusion, where we're designing a platform to bring together in-house, outside counsel, consultants, legal technology professionals from underrepresented groups 
into small groups of their own. That's wonderful. I look forward to hearing and learning more about that. It's very exciting. Um, and we've been working on it for a long time. The pandemic kind of put it on the back burner um, as we've been just trying to focus on our, our knitting, but it's gonna be a very powerful program, we believe. And it's exciting times for us at CCBJ. Very much so. And I'm glad that project has moved forward along with all the other hard work you're doing. Thank you. Carrie, thank you so much for your time and all of your insights today. We really appreciate it. And hopefully in six months or so, we'll be able to meet in real life and reflect on everything we learned this year. I have the same exact hope and it's been a pleasure talking with you. And I look forward to continuing our dialogue. Thank you.